Isn't that a cool video? Margaret uh, is one of our uh, <clears throat> uh, people of peace. Uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, when we go out and we preach the kingdom of God, we, we look for people of peace, and our peace will rest on them. And if it's not a person of peace, our peace will come back to us. And uh, as, as, as we said there in the video, in the first year that you all came and we did the, the VBS there in the park, Margaret just showed up and I looked around and there's this lady I didn't know. She was cleaning up at the snack station. I'm like, who's this? And Margaret's just become part of our hearts ever since then. And, um, you know, it's really neat. She, about six or eight years ago, she, um, uh, she said there she was an alcoholic and uh, she heard a voice uh, say to her one night, um, Margaret, that's enough. And she discerned that that was the Lord speaking to her. She quit. She took all her, all her liquor, poured it out that day. And uh, she's been clean and sober ever since. Um, but, you know, when we first met her, she was, she still, I would say in some ways, was a dry alcoholic. She still had <clears throat> a lot of emotional challenges and things. And so, so to see the level of peace and uh, contentment settle on her in the last couple of years has been a real joy. But one of the neat things that happened was um, her niece... <clears throat> This is almost two years ago. Um, in fact, the second summer um, that we did Mission Sixan, the mission trip, um, her niece said to Margaret, um, you know, I, I've been watching you, and I noticed you're clean and sober, and she said, I want to be like you. And Margaret, Margaret shared that with me, and she said, you know, I had no idea people were watching me. And so um, since that time... Um, we started our first house church in Margaret's house, and then when we multiplied our second house church, it ended up being in Margaret's niece's place. Um, and so that's just how the gospel works. You know, people come into relationship, and it spreads through, through their, their network of friends and family, and so um, it's exciting to see that happen. Um, Thursday morning, I sat down. I was supposed to write a bulletin article, and I began to reflect on the ways that God's been working in our ministry. And uh, if you get a chance to look at that, uh, we have three house churches now. Um, a year ago, we only had one. Um, we were averaging about 11 people a year ago. We've got about 24 on, on average the last month in March. Uh, we had three people that were baptized. Um, God is, has been working in some neat ways, and we're excited to see how this is, is growing. And part of what we, I mean, we have several churches that partner with us, and part of what we're excited to see happen is how, how, do, how do you plant a church? How do you go into a place where there's nothing and start from scratch and build up the kingdom of God there? And so we're excited that you are partnering with us, and uh, we get to work together and learn how to do that. And, and, and Lord willing, that'll be something that you and we, and, and as, as this develops, continues to multiply out into the future we, as we learn how to do that. Um, <clears throat> Let's see what else is on here. Uh, one of the things that's been happening, I know several of you were with us last summer, and we saw the number of teens that we've been able to get to know. Uh, every Monday night, we have a, a kids outreach. We have about 40 uh, pre, uh, kindergarten to grade 5 kids that come to the party, and then we have a teen outreach at the same time, and we have 15 to 20 to 25 teens. Um, one of our house churches is dedicated to those teenagers, so on Wednesday night, we get together uh, again, and the teens that are more interested, that's more a time of discipleship, worship, scripture, uh, and learning about the Lord in a more detailed way. And so uh, we had last, this last Wednesday, we had 11 teenagers, which is the most that we've had come to that. And so, so God just keeps bringing in people as the network of relationship grows and builds. 
And so we're, we're excited about that. One of the things that's going to be new this year is um, after last summer, I, I thought, I don't know how, the, I'm kind of an ideas guy, so I always have more ideas than we can ever do. And I said to uh, Hillary, I said, you know, what, what about maybe sending a couple of interns from Greenville Oaks, uh, mission interns, to work with us next summer? And so uh, Zach and Courtney Mitchell are going to be with us for nine weeks this summer, and they're going to be working primarily with the teenagers and developing their relationships with God, but also helping us, you know, as, as I've observed, you guys come and be with us. <clears throat> um, I love how, I, last summer I saw this specifically many times, you know, there'd be a bunch of teens together, and there'd be one teen off by themselves, and Courtney would go over and sit with them and try and spend time with them and draw them in, and I just saw that so many times with different people. Somebody's off by themselves, and one of you would go to them and be with them, and love on them. And so I said to uh, Engage 1-8, I said, I want, I want you to teach us how to do that. I want you to show us how to do that. And so we're excited about that. <clears throat> Some of the baptisms we had in February, I think there's a couple pictures here. If we could roll uh, to the next one. Um, this is Jamin. Jamin was new last fall, came to us extremely shy, and got baptized in February and has just blossomed coming out of his shell. The next one, Avery. So that's Carla. Some of you know Oscar Contreras. Uh, That's his wife. And the next one is Avery. When we started the party, the kids' ministry, five years ago, Avery was one of those first kids. And now he's in seventh grade and committed his life to the Lord. And he's he's a solid young man with a lot of leadership uh, potential. And I'm excited about what uh, God is doing in his life. And the next slide, what we did was, after these people got baptized... We, um, I got towels embroidered, if we could back up one. On one end of the towel, it has their name, and on the other end of the towel, it says to serve like Jesus. And, I, and we publicly commissioned them, we gave them a towel as a symbol of their servanthood, that you are now a follower of Jesus, and your mission is to serve like Jesus. So they could take that home, and they could keep that as a concrete reminder that in their home, in their school, in their business place, that they are to serve like Jesus. And so we commissioned them publicly. And so that was an exciting moment. Uh, let's see the next slide. So this summer, Mission 610, again, uh, is going to be somewhat similar to the previous years. We'll just roll through all these bullets here. We're going to do another mural. We have a, a neat space uh, um, not far from the first one. Uh, a couple of EBSs, the teen outreach, and the house project. Now, it seems like the last two years we've had uh, some challenges with our construction side, and so we have repented <laughs> and fixed that. And here's what we have: is um, <clears throat> is we have uh, a house. Uh, we have a, uh, we're, we're uh, partnering with a contractor, and he is going to. He has already got the the lot purchased. He has the house designed. The architect and engineers have already done all the drawings, and that's already submitted to the city for approval. So we're excited about that. And what this contractor is going to do is have the foundation laid and the deck of the house built. And so we need six people to come. They're going to frame up this house and put the windows and doors in, siding, roof, and shingles in six days. So it's going to look in six days like a a house has been built. And so we're looking for six people who can swing a hammer. Uh, You don't have to be a journeyman carpenter, but if you can swing a hammer or help Doyce, I think Doyce is going to come and lead from, from your end. Uh, so some of you teens want to come, Landon? Awesome. Um, we need six people to help on that. And the contractor's goal is a good friend of mine, and he said, our goal is that these folks will have a great experience. So I, I do feel bad, and I've already apologized to Doyce. Last year was a bit of a debacle, so 
Uh, we want it to be a great experience. But we need, we need more. Right now, there's only eight people signed up to come. And we need more folks to come. You know, one of the beautiful things about partnering together is you get to know people. Um, you know, we, we want our relationship with you to be much more than, you know, a check that comes every month. Um, last summer, one of the things that happened was, uh, so we had this meeting place. We would all eat together. And then each team would go out, like the mural team would go out and do their work, and they'd come back for lunch. The construction team would go out, and, and all the different teams would go out and then come back at, for mealtime, which was a set time, but you know how it goes. You get, you, know, you get working on a project on the house, and so you get a little delayed. So sometimes the construction folks were late coming back. And Doyce, uh, Donna was working in the kitchen, and, um, and some, several of the people from our end noticed that Donna would never eat until Doyce came back. They always ate together. And after they left, several people commented on that. And you know, a lot of our folks, I mean, they don't even, a lot of the kids have never even seen a wedding. In our context, in, in, and it's typical among poverty situations, people just hook up, sleep, you know, they, 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 they live together for a while, and then when things go wrong, then they, you know, they part ways, and they just kind of keep repeating that. And so a lot of the kids in poverty context don't ever see a wedding. Um, and so to see a couple with that kind of devotion to one another for a lifetime is, is awesome. I mean, it's inspiring. And so that was just a precious moment, and, and some of the people commented on that after. And so, you know, part of you coming is about the work you do, but part of the, you coming is just about your hearts and who you are. And so uh, we need... We need we need more of you to come and, and help us this summer. So if you're able to, please, please consider that. <clears throat> okay. Um, the next slide. Um, our Canadian money. Did I? Yeah, there we go. There is, um, that's a $1 coin. We call that a loony. That's a loon. It's a... a I'm not sure what kind of, it's a duck or what that is. But anyways, so that's a a $1 coin. We don't have a $1 bill. And then there's the $50 bill. In Canada, all our money is colored, so it's really easy to tell the difference between a 20 and a 50 and a 10 and so on. We also have this high-tech, you see here, uh, this this is supposed to be really difficult for for people to forge. There's this strip here, and there's all kinds of counterfeit, anti-counterfeit measures. Anyways, so... um, when I, do this, uh, when I do this in Canada, I invite a couple of teenagers to come up, and I have a, a $1 coin and a $50 bill, and I say, now, which one uh, the younger one gets to pick first? I say, which one would you take? And so the one that goes first always takes the 50 bucks. And so um, just kind of, yeah, we all do that. And one of the things about, <clears throat> about this is we realize that, that, uh, that they're both money. But, but $50 is more valuable than $1, obviously. And so people choose $50 over $1. And the same thing is true in terms of Scripture, in terms of truth. Um, there's a lot of things that are true, but some truth is more weighty than others. Some things are more valuable than others. And when we look at Scripture, Jesus himself said this. If you look at Matthew chapter 23, he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, or the Revised Standard Version says the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so part of what Jesus teaches us is, hey, you know what? You guys, you guys give a tenth of the salt and pepper off your table. That's great. You should do that. You should be, you should be meticulous about your obedience in small things. But you know what? Don't neglect the big things, the $50 bills like justice and mercy and faithfulness. There's some things that are more important than others. Is it right to give a tenth for the Jews, a tenth of the salt and pepper off their table? Absolutely. But that's not a $50 bill. Jesus says, go for those things and be meticulous. Don't neglect them. But there are some things that are weightier, that are more significant, that are more central to the heart of God. And what are those? He says, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so what I want to share with you this morning, I'm just going to move this right up here, is... is a little bit about justice. Um, and I want to turn to an interesting passage from Job chapter 29. I was reading through Job last year and discovered these, these passages, one in chapter 29 and one in chapter 31, um, that talk about where Job is talking about, you know, the story of Job and how he was, the incredible suffering that he went through. And, and Job... Uh, this, this section of Job, like there's about four or five chapters here, where Job says his kind of, his summary argument as to why he is innocent, why all this suffering is so unfair. And part of it is, you know, he says, I took care of my obligations to the poor. I looked after the widow. I was one who, who, who um, was fair to my servants. And I took the immigrants who came to our country and I helped them. And he says, this is part of why my suffering is not fair. Look at chapter 29, verse 7. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me. He's talking about his social standing. And here's why. Those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Job says, I took care of my obligations from the law of Moses. When you read through the text in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I took care of my obligations to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan, to the immigrant. Scholars have talked about the, the, the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. This is the quartet of the vulnerable. In the Old Testament, the, the widow and the orphan had no legal standing. In the, in the ancient world, only men could go to court. And so a man could divorce his wife, but a wife could not divorce her husband. And so once a woman lost her husband, she had no legal recourse. And so these people tended to be mistreated by those who had legal power. Same thing with the orphan, had no father to be his legal, his legal representative. And so these folks tended to get taken advantage of. 
And so God says, you know what? In Exodus, he says, look, you guys were slaves in Egypt, so you know what it's like to be an immigrant. So when you have immigrants in your country, don't take advantage of them. When you harvest your crops, leave the edges of the crops. Don't take everything. Leave the edges of the crops so the poor can come and gather for themselves. When you go over your fig trees and over the vines to collect all of your grapes, don't go over a second time, the law says. Don't do that a second time. Leave what's there for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the immigrant. And so Job says, you know what? I practice justice. He says, I, what does he say? I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. Now, we don't have time to look at the text in chapter 31. Um, but it's, a, it's another text that's very beautiful about how Job was fulfilling his obligations uh, <clears throat> to justice. Those of you that have been with us the last couple years have met Oscar Contreras. Oscar Contreras grew up in El Salvador um, in the 70s and 80s when El Salvador was under the brutal oppression of the government and just 14 families owned more than 60% of the whole country, Central America. The army would come in and they would stomp on a community. They would stop a bus. They would make all the men go on one side and all the women go on the other side. And they would take, take randomly pick ten men out of the group of boys and men that were on the one side. And they'd say, you are now in the army. They would go into a village and they would destroy buildings. They would rape women. They would, they would recruit the men to join into the army. They would take land whenever they wanted. One time, Oscar said in his village, he said, um, <clears throat> the army came with all their tanks and a bunch of men and they were gathering outside the community and they were going to march in and they, nobody knew what they were going to do. There was a Catholic archbishop named uh, Romero and, and Archbishop Romero <clears throat> had a heart for the people and he told them, he said, whenever you are guys are in trouble, like he told everybody in his archdiocese or whatever it was, he said, whenever you guys need help, he said, you call me and he gave his number to all the people. And so the people of Oscar's village called Archbishop Romero, and within half an hour, he came and he stood at the gate of the city, and he told the tanks, he said, if you guys want to come in here, you've got to go through me. And they said, we have a command to go in and into this village, and he said, this is private property, you are not allowed to come in here. If you're going to come in here, you're going to have to go through me. The tanks turned around and all left, and all the soldiers left and did nothing. But within 12 months, Archbishop Romero was mysteriously disappeared and killed. That kind of thing happened all the time in El Salvador. But the people of God are people who say, I will stand with the poor. I will stand with the marginalized. I will stand with, with those who are being oppressed. Because that's part of the heart of God. God has the poor, one of the, one of the biblical perspectives on the poor is that God has the poor as his favorites. God has the poor as his favorites. You know, the wealthy have their, they have their financial advisors. They have their lawyers. They have their, their, uh, their accountants. They have all of the resources they need when they're in trouble. But do you know what the poor have when they're in trouble? They have nothing. They don't have that. They don't have all of these resources that we have. And so, and so for example, in um, okay, Deuteronomy 32 first. God is a rock and his works are perfect and all his ways are justice. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. What we're talking about, the reason why Jesus said justice is a $50 bill is that justice is part of God's very nature. It's part of his heart. 
It's part of his character. And so the reason that this got encoded in the Old Testament law was that this is who God is. When God looked down on on, uh, Sarah and Hagar, do you remember those two stories out of Genesis? And Sarah was mistreating Hagar, and Hagar ran away with her son and was hiding under a bush and was ready to die. And what happened? The angel of the Lord came to her. It's part of the heart of God. And in, in Proverbs chapter 22, next slide. It says, do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. Now, what this means in the Old Testament context was they didn't have police and they didn't have jails. Their justice system worked like this. If if you did wrong to my family, then there would be a what's called a goel in Hebrew, a kinsman redeemer or a, a, a avenger of blood, sometimes it's translated. And the way this would work is my next of kin who was my goel, that would be a male, he would go and he would exact revenge from your family, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, bruise for bruise. And what God is saying here in this text is that, look, if you, if you exploit the poor or you take advantage of them, then you will have to deal with me because I will be their avenger of blood. I will be their kinsman redeemer. I will be their goel. And if you mess with my people, you're going to have me to deal with. So don't do that. Because these folks don't have their lawyers, their accountants, their financial advisors, and all their team of people. So if you mess with those folks, you are messing with me. Now, two things I want to say to you in Collin County. I was told yesterday that Collin County is one of the wealthiest counties in not only Texas, but in the United States. You live in a context of privilege, of financial, material well-being that most of the rest of the world does not enjoy. Go to Grenada, go to Panama, go to Rwanda, go to India, go to lots of places, go to Brazil, go to lots of places in the world, and lots of places in the world do not enjoy the financial, material well-being that you enjoy and that we enjoy in Canada. Nor do they have this physical security. I mean, the physical safety is just not something that the rest of the world has. And so it's important to become global Christians, to travel to China, to travel to Brazil, to go to India, to go to places of poverty, and see what most of the rest of the world experiences. Because we sit here and we say, well, God loves the poor. That's really cool. Well, what does that mean for us? Number two is that our view of poverty needs to be shaped by the Bible more than it needs to be shaped by politics. Um, Dr. Michael Landon is a neat missionary in Churches of Christ, not not Michael Landon from uh, Little House on the Prairie. This is the other Michael Landon who has his Ph.D. in missions, uh, went to Brazil with Max Lucado and was part of that team for 14 years. Dr. Michael Landon, in his doctoral research, he, he surveyed the biblical material about poverty, and he surveyed the social science material about poverty, and what he, what he said was, you know, the, the political right tends to blame poverty on the personal reasons, like laziness, and, you know, people just aren't educated, they just need to get a job, they need to work harder, they need to get educated, the personal causes. The left, the political left, tends to blame uh, or identify that more the systemic causes, like, you know, sometimes society is unfair to you know, to the poor, and sometimes systems that are in place economically and socially oppress the poor. And so the political left tends to emphasize those. And what Michael Landon says in his doctoral research is that the biblical material embraces both of those. That sometimes people are poor because they're lazy, because they're not educated, they're not hardworking. That's true. Sometimes people are poor because the systems oppress them, because there are people who are unjust, because corporations are unfair, and they lay off workers, and then they hire 
You know, in Canada, we have this thing with major bank, Royal Bank of Canada, just laid off a bunch of people, Canadians, and then brought in foreign, temporary foreign workers. Well, what are corporations thinking? Um, just because they can outsource for much cheaper. So, the biblical material, you read through the book of Proverbs, and there's many, many reasons why people are poor. And so our, our view of poverty needs to be shaped more by Scripture than by politics. Can I say that? Is that okay? <laughs> Looking at one of the elders. Um, and, uh, and, so, and so the reason why I think the church is beautifully situated to work with the people who are poor is because we can, we can very granularly, very contextually say to someone, you know what? You know, the system really messed you over. And that's not fair. Or we can say to people, you know what? Like, we have this one woman in our relationships who's been with us hanging out for two years, and she said to Oscar, she said, you know what, you need to get me a house. And Oscar said to her, I'll get you a house as soon as you get a job. You know, two years she hasn't done squat. She hasn't done anything to help herself. She hasn't gone to school. She hasn't looked for a job. She, you know, she, doesn't, she has no income and no resources, and she has nothing. And she says, you need to get me a house. And we're like, no, you've got to help yourself. So the church, more than government, is beautifully situated to, to contextualize very granularly the needs, you know, the, the love of God and, and the help that the church brings to the poor. Um, so, justice is part of the very heart of God. And those who have been given much, much will be required. And so what are you in one of the wealthiest counties in Texas? What are you doing for the poor? Where are those people in this community that are on the margins, that don't have access to the resources that you do? Where are they? Because Jesus is going to say, you know, there's a $50 bill. And I'm looking to see what you did with it. The weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And it's not right for those of us who live in a context of wealth and affluence to, to just reach out to those of other people who are just like us. No, we need to, we need to search. We need to look. We need to, we need to discern where those folks are and how can we incarnationally go to them and, and, and bring the love of God to them and help redemption and lift term that missionaries use when, when salvation comes into the poor's life, it helps lift them up because they, they turn away from their addictions and they turn away from their sloth and they, they turn away from their, their bad habits and they begin to experience lift. Not only spiritually, but materially as well. Where are those people in this community? And what can Greenville Oaks do to reach them? Um... <clears throat> Tell you one story to, to kind of end and wrap this all up. I'm supposed to be talking. <laughs> I'm supposed to be talking this morning about outreach across town. Um, so let me illustrate with this. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I own a revenue property in Regina, and a year and a half ago, there was a young couple that were homeless uh, that came into our fellowship uh, relationships, and. Uh, <clears throat> And the housing market in Regina is extremely tight. Uh, friends of ours have a two-bedroom place, and they just put it on. They put it on the internet, 
uh, to rent out. It's a two-bedroom house for $1,200, and they got, they got over 50 applications um, because a two-bedroom house for $1,200 plus the renters pay utilities, that's a good deal. Anyway, the, the, the housing vacancy in Regina is the lowest in all of Canada. So anyway, so we had, we had a revenue property and it had two suites, upstairs and down. <clears throat> the downstairs suite... Uh, we had hired this couple to, I, to re-shingle the house and in the summertime in, and with my son. And so, um, just as we were getting to know them. And a couple months later, the guy says to me, he says, is your house, is that 2327 McCarran? And I said, yeah. He said, well, the basement suite's in the paper. We had a property manager. The basement suite is empty. And I said, oh, I didn't know it because they don't tell us every detail that goes on. And I, said, and, he, and I said, would you like me, he didn't ask, but I kind of read the situation, and I said, would you like me to recommend you for this place? And he said, yeah. So I called the property manager and said, you know, we have friends of ours that are going to be applying for this place. We'd like you to consider them seriously for this place. So what happened was um, they didn't get the place. And it sat empty for a month. And in the middle of that month of October 2011, I was, uh, this couple, uh, he'd lost his license and he uh, was on, um, uh, what do you call it, Pro- uh, probation with the law. And so I, I was driving them around a lot. And so this one particular evening, I remember I drove them to where they were staying. And uh, he was so despondent. I mean, his body language was like, he was just... He'd given up because he called this property manager, he called that property, they'd applied here, they'd applied there, and he'd call back and he'd call back and he'd call back. And then they would say, well, don't call us, we'll call you because the market is so tight, you know. And he couldn't get anything. And I was convicted because here is a middle-class Canadian with a resource, a house that's sitting empty while my friends are homeless. And I went home to my wife and I said, you know, Lisa, I said, we need to get them in that place. So I called the property manager back and I said, you know what, I said, our friends are homeless and our place is sitting empty and, and we'd really like them to get in. He said, well, they don't have good credit. I said, that's okay. Put them in anyways. He said, well, they're going to trash your place. I said, no, they're not going to. I don't think so. I mean, we've known them for two months now. <laughs> um, and he said, well, maybe they won't, but they're going to have friends over and they're going to party and they'll trash your place. I said, look, we're willing to take that risk. We want them in. And we were ready to dismiss our property manager to get our friends in. So they got into our place, and they were in there for over a year. And through the course of this story, uh, last June, um, and you guys know who I'm talking about, right? This young couple, both were doing hard drugs, alcohol. They were homeless. Both of them had flatlined and gone to the hospital. In fact, the girl's dad, one time when she was in emergency after overdosing, uh, the doctors came in and said, your daughter has a 50-50 chance to live. It's really up to her and her will. And she survived that, and now she's got a young boy and living in our basement suite of our house. And last June, when Steve Roseberry and Todd Vogt came to Regina and visited our, our house church, she said, she said, if it wasn't for this group, I would not be here. And what she meant was I wouldn't be alive. You see, we have resources. 
We have money. We have properties. We have relationships. And God calls us to leverage those things to help those who can't help themselves. And when we do, you see, you see what happened in the growing of this relationship. At first, you know, we hired them to shingle different roofs and different projects. And, you know, we were fair. We, tri- we paid them and we paid them fairly and, you know, we treated them fairly. And, you know, when people first get to know Christians and they see that they're nice people, they do good things and they're kind and they share and that's all cool. But something happened. You see, when, I think what happened in that moment was when we said, we're going we're gonna to put you in our basement suite, we took a big risk. Because they had poor credit and there were all these other issues. But you know what? It showed them we, we treated them better than they, than they expected that we would. They didn't think that we were going to do that. And we did that and that showed them that God was better to them than they expected. And Christians are more committed to them than, and they're some of our best friends now because we went to the wall for them so they're going to go to the wall for us. Does that make sense? And we were, we were just incarnating the love of God to them. And when people experience that, they experience God. And so what I want to invite you to consider is what resources do you have here in Allen, Texas, here in Collin County, where you can share with the poor, those in need, those that are struggling to get ahead? Do you have properties? Do you have money? Do you have equity in your houses? Do you have food? What is it? It's only limited by your imagination, and when you do that, see what happened was when we came time to uh, when it came time to multiply from our house church, first house church to the second house church. Guess where it went? It went to that house in that basement suite. And a month or two, well, within a month, that couple split up, and that was tragic. But guess what happened? The lady upstairs renting, single mom with three kids. Guess what? She and the and the single mom downstairs, their relationship got galvanized, and so they worked together to raise their kids and buy diapers and help each other with their babies and all this stuff. And so now the, both families are coming to their house church, and that's the, that's the core of our second house church. And what became initially for Kevin and Lisa a revenue property is now a ministry resource center. It's like a house church. That's how it works. And so when you incarnate the nature of God, when you go out and do justice and mercy, then God will take that and he will multiply that for his kingdom and his ministry. You see, the poor, I don't know how to, I don't know how to share this with you, but typically, you know, a lot of folks think that the poor, just, they just need to get a job and they need to get, but you know what, the poor, I wish I had a picture of it, but this is what the poor, I can show you a picture of the poor, this is it. They've given up hope. And when someone comes along and says, you know what, you guys are homeless, and you're, trying, you're busting your butts to get a place to live, we'll put you in our place. And they go, wow, didn't expect that. And someone comes along with, a, a, with an act of love and an act of kindness and says, I'm going to help you. You know, here's, here's the story. This, this just came to me. The, the house that you guys helped with last year, we have found a guy, a single dad who's raising, I'm not sure, three or four kids, and his, his, um, he had lived in 10 houses in two years. We said, initially, we said, go to the bank and find out if you can qualify for a mortgage. He went and he didn't qualify. His, his credit score was like 500 and something, which wasn't high enough. And so he was discouraged, and he kind of dropped off the radar for several months. And he thought that he would not qualify for a house. So Oscar and I said, you know what? We need to go find him because he's close. 
And so Oscar went with him, and in the last four weeks, Oscar went with him to the debt arbitrator. They called up his credit score, and they said, you know what? The debt arbitrator said, your score is not that bad. You've got a number of things, but within 18 months, you can pay off all of your bad debt. You can bring your credit score up over 600, so you can qualify for a mortgage. And when he and Oscar walked out of that meeting with the debt arbitrator, he was really emotional, just about crying, and he said, I never would have thought I would have been qualified to buy a house. And you know what? Because he gave up, and Oscar and I said, we need to go find him. We need to look for where he is. He quit calling us, and he quit answering our messages, you know, Facebook and whatever. And we went and found him and walked with him to the debt arbitrator so that he could fix all that. And he signed in that meeting, he signed an agreement saying, in the next 18 months, I'm going to pay X number of dollars every month so I can eliminate my debt and fix my credit score, and I'm going to own a house. This is a single dad raising three or four kids by himself, I have lived in 10 houses in two years. What does that do for his spirit? And we are thankful that God has provided this because once he gets in and begins to tell the story, then that can be, hey, other people can do the same thing. And that is what poor people are. Primarily poor people are not people who just have a lack of money. They are people who have given up hope. And they are despondent. And their body language will say it. And when you come along and say, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to put you in my house. I'm going to go to the wall for you. Because I know probably nobody ever has. That's the love of God. And who knows what God will do with that into the future. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you. Maybe a community of you. Maybe a, maybe a group of 20 of you or 30 of you say, you know, we want to adopt Boyd Elementary School. And we are going to pray for Boyd, and we are going to pray for the principal, and we are going to pray for people of peace who are going to welcome us, and we are going to surround that school with, with love. And reach out to those kids and the parents and move there or whatever. I mean, it's up to your imagination. Maybe a group of you say, we're, we're going to adopt the UT Dallas, and all the immigrant students at UT Dallas, we're going to go over there, and we're going to love on them, we're going to have them over, for, we're going to grill out with them, and we're going to... We're going to make sure that they know that the United States is a hospitable place and when they need help to get their driver's license or they need help to find out X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. I don't know what all the needs are here. That's up to you guys. But the invitation is this. Take that $50 bill and make sure that when Judgment Day comes, you can answer to the Lord and say, look, I took what I had, we took what we had, and we invested it for the kingdom of God. Dream and pray, brothers and sisters. To whom has been given much, much will be required. May God bless you richly in the carrying out of his mission. Amen.